welcome to The Founders, episode 1.1, Young Ben. As promised, we will begin with Benjamin Franklin. But first, let's take a look at the history and meaning of a Franklin. A Franklin was a freeman, freeholder, or owner of land on which he dwelt. The Franklins were fitted by their possessions for becoming sheriffs or knights. After the Norman conquest, men in England took, in addition to their first name, another name, which would be suggested by their condition in life, their trade, or their personal uniqueness. Benjamin Franklin's ancestors are recorded to have lived in Ecton in Northamptonshire, which, in 1657, George Washington's grandfather emigrated to Virginia from the same English county. Josiah Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's father, married young and took his wife and three children to New England about 1682. Once in the new land, Josiah had four more children, from his first wife, and ten more by his second wife, Abiah Folger. Benjamin, the youngest child, wrote that he only could recall thirteen siblings sitting at the table. Benjamin's mother, Abiah Folger, was the daughter of Peter Folger, one of the first settlers of New England. This will be bonus points on the test. This is the very same Folger family that will one day have their own business of making and selling Folger coffee. Before we plunge completely into the life of young Ben, let us take a moment and get ourselves acquainted to his father, Josiah Franklin. Josiah was average height, a good build, and quite strong. Josiah was a mastermind of mechanics, and as such, was very handy at many different trades. One such thing he excelled at was exercising prudent judgment of situations, whether it be a simple family issue or a case down in the courthouse. Even though Josiah was wise and good with his words, he never had an occupation in politics or government, but many times a leading official or important persons would come and seek advice from Josiah. As well, many people would come with personal problems and seek his advice, and he would also be sought out as the unbiased and wise middleman between arguing individuals. Josiah loved to have guests in his home to talk over current events or some new idea that he had. One thing Benjamin recounted is that because his father was always talking about some idea or situation and never spoke about the dinner that they were eating, when Ben was growing up, he was quite indifferent and unobservant of a meal prepared for him that he often could not remember what he had just ate earlier that evening. Which Benjamin was grateful for this indifference because in his adult years, he traveled all over the colonies, England and France, and he encountered quite the variety of dishes and tastes. One final bit about some of Josiah's characteristics, written by Benjamin himself. He was ingenious, could draw prettily, was skilled a little in music, and had a clear, pleasing voice, so that when he played psalm tunes on his violin and sung with all, as sometimes he did in an evening after the business of the day was over, it was extremely agreeable to hear, of which I hope that you, the listener of this humble podcast, would at least find my voice to be somewhat agreeable to hear. Anyways, on to Ben. Ben was put into grammar school at eight years old. The reason being, Josiah was going to use his youngest son as his tithe of his sons to the church. 
which, going to grammar school, would allow Benjamin to become a scholar and a clergyman. Benjamin notes that he had a great love of reading. He stated that he could not remember a time that he did not know how to read. After being in grammar school for less than a year, Benjamin rose from the middle of the class to the top. In fact, he was advancing so rapidly, he was raised up to the next level, which he became third in his new class by the end of that first year. But after mulling over the logistics of paying for a college education and taking care of such a large family, Josiah decided that grammar school and becoming a scholar was not the path for young Benjamin. So, that is when Josiah made the executive decision and pulled Ben out of the grammar school and put him in a school to learn writing and arithmetic. The school Josiah had picked for his son was George Bronwell's boarding school. Although Benjamin only went for writing and arithmetic, Bronwell's school also offered writing, ciphering, dancing, treble violin, flute, and spinet. Also, English and French quilting, embroidery, flourishing, plain work, marking in several sorts of stitches, and several other works. Under Mr. Bronwell's tutelage, he became a pretty fair writer, but failed his arithmetic completely and never made any progress in it. At the age of 10, Benjamin was taken out of school to work in his father's business. Josiah's business was that of a tallow chandler and a soap boiler, which in fact was not Josiah's original trade. He took this work on when he found out that his trade was not lucrative enough to maintain his family financially. Now, for those like me, who when they hear tallow chandler and soap boiler, and haven't got the foggiest idea what that means, allow me to illuminate. Tallow is a form of saturated animal fat, and chandler is a person that makes candles. So, for those who are taking notes, a tallow chandler is one that makes candles from saturated animal fat. And a soap boiler makes different types and scents of soaps by boiling different ingredients together. Ben's duties were to cut the wicks for the candles, to fill the dipping molds, and fill the molds for cast candles, to attend the shop, and to run errands. Shockingly, the adolescent Benjamin did not enjoy working at the candle shop, but Benjamin had a great love and pulled towards a life at sea. Although Josiah was strongly opposed to the idea of a life at sea, Ben was able to learn early in his life how to swim and manage boats. Young Ben usually was the boy in charge of a boat or just of the group while out with his friends. Here's a story that he recounts about one of his expeditions in which he led his friends into some mischief. There was a salt marsh that bounded part of the mill pond, on the edge of which, at high water, we used a stand of fish for minnows. By much trampling, we had made it a mere quagmire. My proposal was to build a wharf there, fit for us to stand upon, and I showed my comrades a large heap of stones which were intended for a new house near the marsh and which could very well suit our purpose. Accordingly, in the evening, when the workmen were gone, I assembled a number of my playfellows and, working with them diligently like so many emmets or ants, sometimes two or three to a stone, we brought them all the way and built our little wharf. The next morning, the workmen were surprised at missing the stones, which were found in our wharf. Inquiry was made after the removers. We were discovered and complained of. Several of us were corrected by our fathers, 
and though I pleaded the usefulness of the work, mine convinced me that nothing was useful which was not honest. Josiah was very aware of his youngest son's dislike of his job at the candle shop, and his desire to run off to the sea. Because of this, Josiah would take Ben on many walks into the workplaces. While spectating different trades, Josiah could observe his son and notice if he had any special interests. Benjamin stated that due to these walks, he gained an array of knowledge of using different tools and skills of workmanships, which would help him in his fabrication of different inventions and just household repairs later in life. Josiah finally settled on the cutler's trade. Ben's uncle had a son, Samuel, that was a cutler, and he had his business in Boston. Yet, Ben's cutler career was cut short. For you see, Samuel was in the business for money, not to train some teen boy for fun. Samuel required that Josiah pay him a fee for taking Ben on as an apprentice, and upon learning that, Josiah put an end to the short and non-existent cutler career of young Ben. Even though Ben was young and did not make a full or constant salary, any money the young boy earned was almost instantaneously spent on a new book. The first collection he ever owned was Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Once he had finished that collection, he sold it in order to purchase R. Burton's historical collections, which contained 40 to 50 small books in all. Benjamin even began reading his father's library which consisted of Plutarch's Lives, Defoe's Essays on Projects, and Cotton Mather's Essays to Do Good. Franklin also noted that some of the books his father had were disputes about religion, which would have an impact on young Ben for the rest of his life. Josiah noted that his son had an obsession with reading, and decided that Ben would be a good fit for a printer. One of Benjamin's brothers, James was already a printer that had been to England and returned to set up shop in Boston. Working in the print shop was definitely something Ben enjoyed much more than making animal fat candles, but the sea still was calling the young, ambitious Franklin. Josiah wanted Ben to become James's apprentice as soon as possible to prevent Ben from running to the sea. At the age of 12, Benjamin was finally convinced and signed the indentures to become an apprentice to James and learn the trade of a printer. Now indentures were agreements written upon sheets that the edges of which were cut or indented to match each other for security and identification. His agreement bound him to the shop and his brother until the age of 21. He picked up the trade fast and was a useful hand to his brother. Probably one of the most exciting perks of young Benjamin's new job and apprenticeship was access to a much broader and much higher quality of books. Ben would many times borrow a book from a bookseller or a customer and would read almost the entire night to finish the book by morning so he could put the book back so it would not be missed. One man made an indelible imprint upon the young Franklin. His name was Mr. Matthew Adams who, after frequently visiting the print shop, noticed Ben and his love of literature. Mr. Adams allowed Ben to borrow whatever books caught his fancy from his own personal library. At this time in his life, Benjamin began giving greater notice and thought to poetry, and thankfully to Mr. Adams, Ben was able to have access to many books that could inspire him to create his own poetry. 
Once Ben began dabbling in writing his own poetry, his brother encouraged him in this way, thinking that he could possibly make some money off of his kid brother apprentice. Ben not only wrote little poems, but he also wrote some ballads, one of which was called The Lighthouse Tragedy, which told the story of the death of Captain Wortholake and his two daughters. Later in life, Ben was not happy with these works, and would label them as Grub Street Ballad Style. Grub Street is a street in London in which many writers of small ability or reputation or just of unhappy fortune had lodgings. Grub Street style, therefore, means poor or worthless in literary value, a term which always implied a sneer. James decided that he would print some of Ben's works, and Ben then had to run around and try and sell them to the public. Due to the event happening recently, the lighthouse tragedy was a hit, and Ben was feeling pretty good about himself. Although for young Ben, this high moment did not last long. For you see, Josiah made sure his son understood that selling poetry was not by any means a stable job, and most verse makers, as poets were referred to back then, were beggars. So, Ben dropped the poetry thing. And so once again, we have another career of young Ben that has been cut off. Even though the poetic writing of Benjamin's life had come to an end, not all of his writings would cease. A bookish lad by the name of John Collins would help to make sure Benjamin Franklin did not lose his ability at prose writing. John Collins was a boy much like young Franklin, obsessed with books and ideas of philosophy and out-of-the-box thinking. Franklin recorded that Collins and he would get into arguments and debates all of the time, and sometimes they would argue just for the sake of arguing. To any sane adult that has spent any amount of time around children, the next statement should ring very, very true. In his autobiography, Franklin states, which, disputatious turn, by the way, is apt to become a very bad habit, making people often extremely disagreeable in company by the contradiction that is necessary to bring it into practice, and thence, besides souring and spoiling the conversation, is productive of disgusts and perhaps enmities where you may have occasion for friendship. Basically, those heated and contrite arguments that the boys enjoyed all of the time were not enjoyed by anyone else at all. Nobody. And even if one of them were arguing for someone, the sheer number, frequency, and ferociousness of their arguments would sour any conversation or time spent with either boy. I mean, let's be real. Who in their right minds can even slightly stand the sound of children arguing? I know, I can't. Part of the reason that young Ben would wage all-out warfare of words, he traced back to the books in his father's library about the disputes over religion. Franklin also noted that people of good sense seldom fall into the pit of arguing for argument's sake and all-out ferocious arguments except for lawyers, university men, and men bred at Edinburgh. One argument Franklin recounted was a disagreement about females being able to study and learn as much as, or like a man could. Collins was of the opinion that it was improper and that females were naturally unequal to it. 
Ben took the opposing side. He did believe in his argument, but admittedly, a small reason why he took that side was for another round of arguing fun. Why not? Ben had a good, sound, logical mind. But Collins had a vast and eloquent vocabulary and knew extensively how to use it. When in the midst of their verbal sparring match, even if Ben had a good strong reason to back his point, the sheer eloquence of Collins was somewhat overwhelming and bore down on Ben. The boys went back and forth for a good while, but had to part ways before settling the issue. Ben decided he would write his thoughts on the argument down, and when he had done so, he made a copy and sent it to Collins. The letters began flying back and forth about the same topic of argument for three or four letters apiece. At about this time in the argument, Josiah found Ben's writings on the subject. Now Josiah did not weigh in and tell Ben what he thought about their topic, whether he believed females could or could not study. But he did coach his son on his writing ability. Josiah noted that Ben was far better than Collins in spelling and punctuation. But he also pointed out that Ben was lacking greatly in his elegance of expression, or in other words, Ben just did not have the wherewithal to convey his thoughts nearly as well as Collins. Once Josiah proved his point in several different places in the letters, Ben saw that his father was right. Therefore, Ben determined to improve his vocabulary and his ability to express his thoughts more clearly, however possible. About this time in his life, Ben came across the third volume of The Spectator. Now, the Spectator was a paper published in London every weekday from the 1st of March, 1711 to the 6th of December, 1712. It held aloof from politics and dealt with the manners of the time and with literature. This was the first he had ever seen one. He then bought it and began to read it over and over again. Ben fell in love with the writing and decided that he would try his best to embody the way it was written and the ability needed to write just like that. In order to imitate this writing, Ben went through the paper and wrote down some hints about the thoughts and ideas the paper portrayed. Then he laid the paper aside for a few days. After he had let a few days go by, Ben started elaborating about the little hints he had written for himself, without looking back at the paper until he had fully expressed his thoughts in his own words on each hint. Once he had come to an end, Ben looked over the paper and made any corrections necessary to his own work. He was looking to file away in his own vocabulary certain words that he had found in the articles of the paper. Ben reflected about his former intrigue and dabbling into poetry, and he understood if he had stayed that course even just a little, his variety of words would be much greater than they were now. Ben decided that to more easily retain and remember his new words, he would put them into poetic verse. Once again, Ben left the prose that he had read and did not look at it for many days. After the days had passed, Ben would try again working with his new words and trying to use them to express his thoughts. Another exercise Ben would do is he would take all of his hints, mix them totally up, and then sift through everything and logically put it all back in order. For you see, Ben was not only trying to learn a new writing style and new words, but also how to effectively prioritize his thoughts and how to best put them in order to convey his ideas the best way possible. So, just as before, when he would try and write everything out, 
He would look back over all of it and correct any of his mistakes. And, every so often, he had the joy to realize that he had not only effectively accomplished his goal, but also improved upon the original paper. These little bits helped Ben not throw in the towel on his writing abilities, but actually encouraged him in the thought that one day, even he could be a successful writer. The only time the apprentice could afford to spend time on his hobbies would either be after work late in the evening or in the morning before work began. In some cases though, Sundays was also a time Ben would use since everyone else was attending church. Franklin wrote and believed that it was his duty to attend church, but he often found that he did not have the time to practice this duty. At 16 years old, Ben came across a book written by a man named Tryon. In this book, the author recommends a vegetable diet, and Ben, of course, decided to go on it. Now, James was still single, so James and any and all apprentices that he had would have to be bored with the family near the print shop. Because Ben now refused to eat flesh, he was at times an inconvenient burden to the family in which he and his brother and any other apprentices boarded with. After living this way for a period, Benjamin suggested that if James would give him half of the money James was currently paying for Ben's boarding, that Ben could board himself. The moment James heard cutting one of his expenses in half, the deal was sealed. Ben soon found out that the money that James paid him now, he could survive off half of it and was able to save the remainder of it. But of course, the savings that Ben began was spent mostly, if not completely, for purchasing books. When James and his other apprentices would go for lunch, Ben would remain at the shop alone. Now, Ben's meals would usually consist of a biscuit or a slice of bread, a handful of raisins, or a tart from the pastry cooks, and a glass of water. Once he had finished eating, Ben then had the remainder of the lunch period to study his books. Ben found that every so often he would be reminded of his abject failure in mathematics, and was quite embarrassed and ashamed of that fact. Remember the two years he attended George Bronwell's school, he failed arithmetic both years. Therefore, Benjamin determined to better himself and obtained a copy of Cocker's Book of Arithmetic. Immediately, he began working one page at a time and very quickly worked through the entire book, and to his delight, he found it quite easy now. After flying through his new arithmetic book, Ben was encouraged and decided to look at other areas of learning, and so he picked up Sellers and Shermie's Book of Navigation. In these books, Ben became acquainted with geometry, but the books only had what little you need to navigate, and Ben never really pursued navigation or geometry ever again. Ben was still concrete in his desire to improve his grammar. Ben met with a teacher of grammar, and at the end of the lecture, they talked about the art of rhetoric and logic, as well a dispute in the Socratic method. Soon after, he went and acquired Xenophon's memorable things of Socrates, which was brimming with places where the Socratic method was used or shown. The Socratic method is the method of modest or humble questioning, which Socrates used with pupils and opponents alike and by which he led them to concessions and unforeseen conclusions. Franklin was taken by the Socratic method. He fell in love with it and began implementing it as often as he could. He forsook his contrite, confrontation style of arguing 
and became the misunderstanding questioner, or the humble doubter. Then began reading Shaftesbury and Collins, the same authors that had a strong influence on the deist Voltaire and Rousseau, which in fact also led Ben to become an actual doubter of religious doctrine, just like the aforementioned. Ben used the Socratic method and stated that it was the safest method for himself and was quite embarrassing for those he used it on. Due to that, he delighted in using it. He always endeavored to perfect it and became an expert in drawing out people, people that sometimes were of a higher intelligence and causing them to become entangled in their own words and thoughts, and therefore winning arguments that in some cases he did not deserve or his side he was arguing for did not even deserve to win. Over the next couple years, Ben began leaving the method behind, but he never departed from sharing his thoughts or ideas in terms of modest difference or humble words. Basically, Ben would not use the words certainly, undoubtedly, or words that gave a concrete opinion or thought. Terms he would use were, I conceive, I believe, it appears to me, I imagine it to be so, or it is so if I am not mistaken, and other sayings like those. Franklin noted that he believed using this style and having that humble, unassuming air about him was much more beneficial to Ben in whatever he was trying to do, whether convince someone of his opinion, promote an idea, market a product, or just have a regular conversation. Ben noticed that people would have a more pleasantness about them when he did not have his abrupt and argumentative style of speech. For you see, Ben was learning the old principle and proverb that a soft answer turneth away wrath. The year is now 1721, and James had gotten in his head to publish a newspaper. Now regarding newspaper printing in the colonies, the first continuously published newspaper in America was the Boston Newsletter, published in 1704 by John Campbell. The second paper was published by William Booker and printed by James Franklin in December of 1719, named the Boston Gazette, and as well in 1719 American Weekly Mercury began its publishing in Philadelphia. Then on August 7, 1721, James Franklin began publishing and printing his very own newspaper, the New England Current. A handful of James's friends tried to convince him to abandon his idea, because they were of the mindset that the colonies would only ever need one newspaper. You see, they believed that there was only one other newspaper that was being printed at the time. But James was not dissuaded and went ahead with his plan. When Benjamin Franklin is actually writing his autobiography in 1771, he makes note that there are more than 25 newspapers in the colonies. Once the current had begun printing, Ben's main job was to carry a load of papers and go throughout the streets selling them. Some of James's friends were men well known in their community and were quite intelligent. And for amusement's sake, or to help a friend out, or maybe even a little bit of both, some of these men wrote little pieces for the current. These pieces did the trick and added some much-needed legitimacy as well made the paper in higher demand. What may have started out as a helpful or kind gesture by James's friends actually started to become a real gig, and these men would come around quite often to the print shop. Ben enjoyed listening to the men, as they would frequently show up and talk about 
random items on which they would write or what interested them. Ben was 16 years old, and after many attempts at getting his own letters and his own writings published in the newspaper under his own name, and having been denied by James, Ben decided to write with a made-up name. Therefore, Ben wrote letters to James under the name of Silence Do Good, and left them under the print shop door at night. The letter was picked up in the morning, and James would read it and show it to his friends as they would arrive in the morning as well. Through this deception, Ben was able to hear all of their thoughts on the letters, and to his pleasure, they found the letters to be quite good. After Ben had exhausted his knowledge by writing 14 Silence Do Good letters, he decided to end his charade and told his brother and his friends that it was himself that had been writing these letters. James's friends, upon learning of Ben's ability, began to think of Ben more highly, which of course went to the young boy's head and was one of the first things that began to drive a wedge between James and Ben. Even though James and Ben were brothers, James thought of their relationship more of the master and apprentice, and Ben felt as if James was expecting more of his younger brother than he would of just a regular apprentice. The brothers began to have arguments, and as often as they had argued, they had brought their disputes before their father. The brothers would win some disputes and lose some. Ben had all of his practice in arguing with Collins, but James was quite passionate. Ben absolutely hated losing an argument to his brother, and as time went on, Ben became extremely disenchanted with his apprenticeship. Soon, he was constantly looking for a way to get out of his indentures. But, little known to the brothers, very soon, Ben will be free of his apprenticeship. One of the issues of the current contained a portion that spoke of a political point, which offended the assembly, which was the local legislature. James was then imprisoned for a month and was censored. Ben was taken by the council and examined before them as well. The council was not content with their inquiry of Ben, but since he was just the apprentice, the council merely admonished him and let him go. While James was in prison, Ben had the management of the shop and the newspaper, which Ben took advantage of and took some shots at the council. Now James appreciated it, but most others that were reading it began to dislike the young founder for his brash attack on the council. Oddly enough, when James was released from prison, the assembly ordered that James Franklin could no longer print the paper called the New England Current. James, his friends, and Ben met in the printing house and debated on what to do about the paper. Some offered to merely change the name, but James did not want to do that. So, James came up with the idea of printing the New England Current under the name of Benjamin Franklin, thereby getting around the assembly's ruling that James Franklin could not print the paper. Now, to avoid getting into trouble by printing in the name of his apprentice, James returned Ben's indentures with a full discharge to show if anyone was to inquire. Although James had his younger brother sign secret new indentures to finish his time with James, this plan was executed and worked quite well. After many months of printing the New England Current in Ben's name as opposed to James's name, Ben still found himself disenchanted with having to work for his brother and being his apprentice and Ben wanted to go and find his own work somewhere else. Ben felt that since his new indentures were secret 
and could get James in a lot of trouble if he actually produced them. Ben decided this was the time to take his freedom. When Franklin wrote his autobiography, he admits that he was definitely wrong for doing it. But the young Franklin was not bothered by his irresponsible actions and double dealings. James then went about the entire town and made certain that no other print shop would hire Ben. Therefore, Ben thought to travel to New York and work at a print shop there, because that was the closest print shop that there was to Boston. The only problem was, since Ben had ticked off the assembly with some of his pot shots when he ran the paper, it was a slim chance they would let him go, or at least let him go without making sure the ruling council wherever he went knew that he was a troublemaker. Also, not helping Ben's cause, Josiah was firmly behind James and was not going to help Ben in any endeavor that he had in mind. Ben was able to get a hold of his old friend and verbal sparring partner, John Collins. And Collins was willing to help Ben to get to New York. Collins asked a favor from a captain of a New York sloop. The captain agreed to hide Ben on his ship and take him to New York. Three days later, and nearly 300 miles from home, our young founder, at the age of 17, without recommendation, without knowing anyone, and with just a little money in his pocket, found himself all alone in New York. Next time, we will pick back up in Franklin's life as we follow him to where he is most famous, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Thank you, and God bless.